1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The 2016 film Hidden Figures highlights black female mathematicians who battled racial and gender discrimination to help NASA launch its Apollo missions to the moon. This summer, an Atlanta native, single mom, and Georgia State doctoral student will follow in their footsteps. India Jackson was accepted to NASA's prestigious internship program. She had only one problem money. The stipend offered would not cover travel and living expenses for her and for her daughter. That's when strangers from around the world stepped in, raising more than $8,000 to help fulfill India Jackson's dreams. And she joined me in the studio shortly before she and her daughter boarded that plane to Houston. India, congratulations. Thank you so much. What a story. And I think people have to hear it. When did you know you actually had the internship?
2: You know, um, I found out in April, and maybe like a week later, we got the package, and in, in big bold letters it said, "You are responsible for your own travel and housing," and mm. I was like, "Crap!" Yeah. <laughs> so, did you, is that the point where you say, "Houston, we have a problem"? <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's the perfect way of putting it.
1: So, how did you start raising money for it?
2: Well, uh, actually, I didn't. My cousin did. Like you mentioned, I am a single mother, so uh, I said, I. I really don't see how it's possible for me to pay rent here in Atlanta because I still have to have my place here. And for me to pay um, for housing in Houston, to pay for travel, to get back and forth from Houston and to have a car because I have a child. So you can multiply that by two. Mm -hmm. So I was just ranting to my cousin about it. A few hours later, she said, I started this GoFundMe campaign for you. And I was like, do you think people really going to, you know. Help me with this. They don't know me. And she said, your story is inspiring. And I think that people will, you know, if you put it out there, I think that people will Help you, and
1: hundreds of them did. Yes, very quickly. I mean, but that doesn't happen to everybody, and th- these are people who helped you afford a summer at the Lyndon B. Johnson <laughs> Space Center in Houston in 24 hours. Oh, yes, that's the money what was came amazing. in. Why do you think your story appealed to so many people? Um, I still ask
2: myself that. I think that it was a combination of, of the way that my cousin worded the story. I also believe that it's because a lot of people aspire to work for NASA or go to NASA or people just love science fiction. And uh, I think that I connected with uh, not just single mothers, but with parents in general and how hard it is to uproot and to move your children. And even something as simple as paying for summer camp can be a burden. So uh, I think that it was many aspects of the story that touched people in different ways. What kind of comments did people leave? There was this one comment that Stuck out to me. It was a simple sentence. It said, "This is important." And he gave me a thousand dollars.
1: Oh my goodness, that kind of breaks my heart. <laughs> but
2: there were also um, people who donated a dollar, five dollars, which is just as, as significant mm. because it's telling me that you're giving me your last. And it was very touching.
1: But do you, does that feel like there's pressure? Do you Absolutely. feel like you're being of course you to know, do what?
2: I'm a very honest person, so uh, it was very overwhelming. It was very. Exciting! It was very emotional. I'm very grateful. And it's also a pedestal. I have to deliver results, you know, right. um, which I plan on doing anyway. And, you know, apparently NASA believes that I can do so as well. That's why they gave me the and internship. And you even went over the $8,000. I did. I told my cousin to cut it off. Why? People work hard for their money. I got what I needed in order to to be comfortable. This is not a cash grab. You know, um, I chose to be a scientist to make history, not to make money. (laughs) You know, so I said, cut it off. And people, oh, my goodness, have been begging me from all over the world. Please cut it back on. (laughs) You you never know what may happen while you're out there. And I'm like, look, she put it in there that
1: I will be getting a stipend. So I won't be completely flat broke. But you are still taking a pay cut, right? You were teaching full time in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So what made you decide now is the time to pursue this other passion?
2: Well, GSU um, started a new interdisciplinary field called solar informatics or astroinformatics. And that's basically where we take mathematical statistics. We use big data computer programming in order to try and successfully predict solar flares and radiation belts. And um, I wanted to do research with them. So I reached out with them and I said, hey, are, y- are y'all looking for a
1: statistician? And they was like, yeah, we actually need one. And so they said solar flare person? <laughs> yeah. You, you're, mean, you're talking to like, you need to explain this in like 8th to 11th grade math terms for me, or science terms.
2: Oh, um, they're just big bursts from the sun. Let's just leave it at that. They're just huge <laughs> bursts from the sun um, without going into great detail, and they can, um, they can cause some serious damage to our technology. Um, have you ever heard of the Carrington event? Yes, I have. Right. So, um, you know, that caused, um, you know, we had telegraphs back mm-hmm. then, and it caused some issues with the Telegraph this was a huge then. solar flare and they right. say
1: that this kind of thing could happen and damage all of our power infrastructure and that us kind of thing. power grids yeah. the um our satellites
2: planes that are really high um it could cause some serious damage so um that's the research that we were doing at gsu um not necessarily what i will be doing at nasa it'll be a it'll be predicting solar flares before a different purpose but my dissertation will be more than likely i haven't narrowed in on it, but more than likely my dissertation will be on trying to protect our technology. And astronauts, I guess, too, right? For people who are on the space station? Well, that's what I'll be doing with NASA. Mm-hmm. So... um I will be studying solar energetic particles in order to try and um, protect our astronauts at the ISS station and uh, uh, preparation for the ones
1: who are getting ready to go to Mars in a few years. My guest is India Jackson. She is going to be at NASA's prestigious internship program this summer in Houston. And how's she getting there? Well, with the help of the kindness of strangers, many, many strangers contributed to make sure she and her daughter had travel and living expenses Okay, so a little bit of background here. Your daughter, she's 11, right? She just turned 12 Oh, she, 12. a couple of days ago. Well, happy birthday to <laughs> Jewel. Um, so what is she going to do? She's going to go to summer
2: camp, to uh-huh. Boys and Girls Club. Um, I was a member of the Boys and Girls Club from 6 years old to 16. I even won their presidential scholarship when I graduated. So Jewel will be going to the Boys and Girls Club. Okay,
1: so you won a presidential scholarship then. Have you just always been the brilliant kid <laughs> in school? Well, uh, I would say
2: gifted. I have always been gifted. If you were to have a conversation with my parents, you know, they said that I scared them a little bit, you know, having full adult conversations at, uh, I think she said one and a half. I was having conversations like this, but um, when it came to school, I always did good. Uh, But I, I I always focused on other things rather than grades all the time. You know, I didn't graduate valedictorian Mm -hmm. or salutatorian. Uh, Even with my undergrad, um, I think my final GPA was like a 3.33 with my, masters it was a 3.6 so um i've always been very gifted and you know i always make sure to let people know that uh an education and intellect aren't necessarily um related you know, uh, you can be very
1: intellectual and not have um, that much education to back it up. Well, and you teach, right? I uh, do. Uh, now we have more and more STEM programs and camps becoming more available to girls and children of color. Just this month, Georgia State University announced researchers received $3 million to prepare STEM teachers for Atlanta schools. Mm-hmm. So you're from here, graduated from MLK High School. Mm-hmm. What kinds of opportunities were you offered and would you are you seeing offered to kids? One of the biggest influences with me becoming a scientist,
2: is um, in the eighth grade, um, my class had the opportunity to apply for a very special program called the Fernbank Scientific Tools and Techniques Program. My best friend and I were, I, I believe it was maybe 10. All of us applied in the eighth grade and 10 of us actually got it. We won this opportunity. It changed both of our lives. I actually had a conversation with her a couple of days ago and I asked, I said, do you think that our exposure to that program is what led us to be scientists? And she said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I agree with her. That program um, gave young black children the opportunity to see and hear and um, participate in sciences that we would that we've never heard of, like ornithology, botany. Uh, physics, and um, astronomy. You know, they have that planetarium. Once I walked into that planetarium, I knew that I wanted to be a
1: scientist. I'm thinking nerd, not mm-hmm. always embraced as a term, and uh, black nerds or blurred. Yeah, maybe even blurs, less absolutely. so. But so how <laughs> do you inspire your daughter to become more interested in nerd culture? Because the, the pressure for coolness has always been Part of the balance, right?
2: Well, the thing that I can say nowadays is um, being a nerd is trendy. It's revenge at the nerd's time. Right. Um, being a true nerd is something that's quite different than being a trendy nerd. I am a true nerd when I, you know, look at movies like Interstellar or Star Wars or even um, watch shows like Game of Thrones. Uh, I try to find scientific basis <laughs> in it to see if it is. At least scientifically sound, even though it's science fiction. Um, And being a trendy nerd is, you know, um, I wear the um, I wear a NASA shirt. I don't know what they stand for or which is perfectly fine. I'm fine with everybody embracing the nerd culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I allow my daughter to be herself. I don't pressure her to uh, like certain things or do certain things. But with that said. My parents are, um, they introduced us to nerd culture at a very young age. How? Well, my mother has been at Emory University um, for 30 years. Um, and my uncle was a, a comic book collector. He was one of the first people to go to, it was called the Atlanta Con. Now it's called Comic-Con? Dragon Con. Uh-huh. Dragon, Dragon Con. Con. Okay. He passed a while ago maybe about 30 years ago and my mother still has his first badge that you had to pin on um so this is um lifelong we've we've always been into that culture so my parents absolutely um encouraged me to be myself be who i am and um you know, being a nerd has always been cool to me. Being geeky has always been cool to me. And if you are yourself, people will respect it. Eventually, some up front. I never really had an issue when it came to bullying or things like that. But um, after a while, people will accept it. And as you can see, they have. <laughs> um, and... It's fun. It's fun to be open, to like what you like and love what you love. And my daughter is obsessed with anime. She's not really much into the science fiction like I am, but she loves anime. And I support
1: her with that. You also have a cool nerd tat. I've noticed. I do. <laughs> I, saw it in the I New have York a couple Times. of... Um, you've got people... one right across your chest. What is yes. that? What is... It's an equation and yes. I can't even...
2: It is a calculus two equation. It is called the definition of a definite integral. Why is that important to you?
1: Why Why? It's just my that?
2: favorite one. You know, everybody thinks that it's something philosophical or something to it. No, it's just it's just it was my old to mathematics. You know, um, I gave my life to math for a long time um, and I, you know, I would never leave math behind because, you know, physics and astronomy requires quite a bit of math knowledge. But um, I was done with math. I decided to get my Ph.D. in my passion, which is physics. So I said, this is my ode to math, you know. So I guess maybe it was kind of dramatic. <laughs> I still think that it is one of the most
1: eloquent equations because it's just so beautiful. Well, I'm so happy for you. I wonder if you have any thoughts or words to extend to the people, who, all the strangers who helped you get here. Um, There really are no words.
2: It was absolutely amazing. Um, I'm still very much overwhelmed by this. And that is the truth. Uh, Sometimes I wake up like, wow, I am going to Houston um, free of charge. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't have to worry about anything Um, to all of my donors. Everything is paid for. I plan on um, uploading receipts soon. I paid for the entire 10 weeks for housing uh, for the rental car. And I am forever grateful hopefully I will make it to the international space station. That is my ultimate goal, you know, lose a little bit of weight, I think maybe about 35 pounds for my height. Um, I've looked into scuba diving lessons. I look, I've looked into pilot lessons and uh, with my foot in the door at NASA, I think that my chances have increased from 0.0009% to 1%. <laughs> Spoken <laughs>
1: like a true statistician.
2: <laughs> and uh, that is the ultimate goal. So we'll
1: see if I can get there. Uh, I've, Talk to you for about 15 minutes, and I can say I think it was a really good investment in all those people who contributed. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Atlanta native India Jackson, pursuing her doctorate in physics at GSU and getting a little closer to her dream by interning at the NASA International Space Center in Houston this summer. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. From waiting rooms across the country to the floor of the U.S. Capitol, healthcare is the biggest issue for American voters. One of the biggest challenges in Georgia is access to doctors and to pharmacies, especially in rural parts of the state. And then there is the cost of care. According to the Commonwealth Fund, a quarter of Americans report not filling prescriptions they can't afford. Some individuals, organizations, and policymakers aim to improve healthcare, equity, access, and affordability. And we aim to explore some of those innovative solutions, starting with a nonprofit that distributes surplus drugs to low-income people. Kia Williams and Adam Kircher are two co-founders of Serum. It's now operating the Good Pill Pharmacy out of a warehouse in Gwinnett County, and they're here with me in the studio to talk about it. Kia, Adam, welcome. Thank you for having us today. We're thrilled.
3: Absolute pleasure.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you with us. And I want to get to the root of the problem a little bit before we look at what Serum is doing the conversation around affordable health care, that is often about cost of diagnosis or services, hospital stays, even seeing a doctor. Kia, how do prescription medications factor
0: into health care issues here in the U.S.? Getting a diagnosis and seeing a doctor is an important component in this whole process of improving health, but it's not where it ends. Oftentimes, folks get a diagnosis, they need to take a medication, and we send them out the door, and they just can't afford it. One in four people in the U.S. right now can't afford the prescription drugs they need to stay healthy.
3: So a typical serum patient might be on over three medications. They may live a far distance from a pharmacy, be elderly, not have a car. They could potentially be an hourly wage worker who has to take off of work and lose wages in order to make that commute. And then when they get there, they're faced with a cash price for medicine that's many times higher than what you or I would pay. And then to make matters even worse, prices vary so widely among pharmacies that they might have to visit multiple pharmacies just in order to cobble together the best price for each of their medications.
0: So we see all these... Downstream impacts, avoidable emergency room visits, hospitalizations, that when we try to best quantify them, it actually costs our healthcare system over $100 billion every year.
1: And the lack of access to medicine disproportionately impacts underserved groups, including communities of color, both in rural and urban areas. So, what is Serum doing to help?
0: Serum connects surplus unused medicine from places throughout the healthcare ecosystem. So we're talking manufacturers, wholesalers, long-term care facilities like nursing homes and pharmacies. So each of these types of facilities have a little bit of surplus that exists either because they have a little bit of a safety stock or because of patient level events like someone has a dosage change or a medication is discontinued. And so all of that surplus across the healthcare ecosystem actually adds up to over five Billion dollars of unused medicine wow. that right now is going to waste every year. And let's clarify: this is not expired
1: medicine; these this are is surplus,
0: surplus unexpired medications in healthcare institutions. So we're not talking about the medications in you and I medicine's cabinet. Mm-hmm. We're talking about unexpired medications. That the reality is, a lot of it where it ends up today is either in a medical waste incinerator, burnt, or in our water. And so what we do is we use technology to connect that surplus with the people who need it. So we have an online platform that allows these organizations to understand what they can donate, where they can donate. And we do really simple things like send people a box that they can put it in. It's really like adding a recycling program to their facilities because we believe if we can recycle a five cent Coke can, why aren't we recycling a $200 medication? So you don't accept donations from consumers? We do not accept donations from individuals. We get asked that question a lot. We're only focused on licensed healthcare facilities, and these are all medications that are unexpired and also no controlled substances, so no opioids.
1: Okay. I was going to ask how they get to you. You send them a box and have
0: them send it back to you? They put the medicine in the box, and then we get it directly to one of our partner clinics or charitable pharmacies. And so what's important here is in the state of Georgia, um, you know, we helped launch Good Pill Pharmacy to actually act as a statewide resource. resource for all low-income families. So the pharmacy takes in medications from pharmacies and nursing homes right here in Georgia. And then because Good Pill is a mail-order home delivery pharmacy, we're able to actually get those medications to folks, whether they live in the Atlanta metro area or they live in Fort Gaines, Georgia and rural Georgia. There's a huge issue of access in what we call pharmacy deserts, where, you know, everyone has heard of food deserts where folks aren't close to grocery stores, but there are countless communities in the state of Georgia that are pharmacy deserts. In urban areas, it could be that someone's a few miles from a pharmacy. In rural communities, oftentimes people, the closest pharmacy is over 10, 15 miles away. So you're talking about a potential 20, 30-minute commute each way just to be able to pick up your medications. And so by us being able to deliver those medications We're really giving people their time back and putting money back in their pocket, in addition to being able to provide them with affordable medication that they otherwise are just not going to be able to get.
1: This is a national program. Why did you set up in Georgia?
0: We actually had a concerned citizen, uh, Mr. Les Gallant, had read about our work and wanted to see a program like this happen in Georgia. Um, We then connected with Representative Sharon Cooper, who's actually the chair of Health and Human Services on the House of Representatives side. But more importantly, her background is actually as a nurse. So she kind of knew firsthand that... Medication access is a crucial part of people getting better and living their best lives. So we actually worked with them on really revamping and creating a Good Samaritan Drug Donation uh, program here. So... The policy side, super important, that allows this medicine donation program to happen and protects it. Yeah, I Uh, was wondering about that. There must be regulations about using surplus medicine and distributing
1: them to consumer end, right?
0: Exactly. So there's about 40 states in the U.S. that have drug donation laws that allow this type of work to happen. Georgia definitely has one of the strongest, if not the strongest law in the United States because it really not only enables, but it really prioritizes and really pushes folks to be able to donate by providing all the liability protections that one would need and really make it as easy as possible for healthcare institutions to do the right thing and donate.
1: That's Kia Williams. She is here with Adam Kircher. They are two of the co-founders of the Good Pill Pharmacy here in Georgia. It repurposes unused surplus prescription drugs and provides them via mail order to low-income patients who need them. How does somebody qualify for the program?
0: So here in Georgia, we're working with any individual who's either uninsured, underinsured, has too high of a copay or too high of a deductible, meaning they have a type of insurance, but their copays or deductibles could be thousands of dollars a year before their insurance actually kicks in. And the reality is, if a family is making $20,000 a year, they're not going to be able to hit a $1,000 deductible to have their insurance kick in. And so instead of getting their medications, they're literally making the decision between picking up a prescription and buying groceries or paying rent. Mm. We don't think that's a fair decision for someone to have to make.
1: And how did they find out about you?
0: We are thrilled to have a coalition of community partners. Generally, we call it the safety net of clinics. So organizations like the Georgia Charitable Care Network, which represents free, or low-cost clinics that are seeing low-income patients throughout the state. So we partner with these community providers to help identify, and these are the doctors and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who are having the conversations with their patients and who really understand that people are making these trade-offs. And so they're making these referrals to our pharmacy to help ensure that their patients are getting quality care. But also, folks who are hearing about us on this wonderful program can feel free to actually um, go on our website at goodpill.org and register with us, and we can start filling your medications. We try to make it as easy as possible for people to either send their prescriptions directly to the pharmacy when they're sitting in their doctor's office. They can tell their doctor they'd like them to be filled at GoodPill, or um, what oftentimes happens is someone goes up to that retail pharmacy counter, is given a bill that they just can't afford, and so they abandon that prescription there. We also have the ability to actually transfer that prescription to be filled at GoodPill and mailed directly to someone's home.
1: So I understand that you all started this kind of as a weekend project, people who were interested. What was the background and what was the motivation? Adam?
3: Absolutely. The idea was inspired after I had just made a trip to Indonesia. Uh, I saw in the news that a tsunami had devastated some of the places I had just visited. Mm. So I followed the relief effort very closely, and it was taking months to distribute donated medicine. I live in a world in which I can order pretty much anything and get it within two days, and I wanted to use that same kind of technology and logistics to be able to get life-saving medications to the people who needed them. Um, So I joined forces with my co-founders, George and Kia. And together, we discovered that was over $5 billion, B as in billion dollars of waste um, that was just not getting to the people who needed it. So the three of us started nights nice and weekends. We were soon managing hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations. And so we decided, let's quit our jobs. Let's do this full time. Uh, George, at the time, was a neuroscientist at Stanford. Keo had done a lot of amazing policy work at the American Heart Association, um, I was a former McKinsey consultant, uh, and I dropped out of uh, Harvard Business School. Um, but we've never looked back. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, we've made a great impact so far, and I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg here.
1: Yeah, well, so, but, but we do have the experience of people putting all of their photos into a failed startup or other personal material into the hands of servers of great ideas. How are you going to make sure that people who sign up and depend on serum or good pill for affordable drugs can continue to get them?
3: We have a very sophisticated algorithm that basically holds stock until we have enough medicine so that when we do offer medications to a patient, we can continue them on that therapy um, indefinitely. One of our biggest fears would be to start someone on a medication and then not be able to see that through. And so we're very careful in order to make sure that they can continue that medicine from us.
0: Have you ever run out of stock of any kind of medications? We have. So, you know, that is one thing that we, so across the board um, at Serum, obviously, donated stock is not guaranteed. Um, and so what we work a lot on is making sure that we're looking at like historical data. So we've been running Serum since 2011. So we have about seven years of historic data on what medications are surplus and which ones have been donated so we're able to use all of this historic data to project forward kind of what's going to happen what are we going to get in our system but the re- reality of what a lot of our innovation is is that we're not relying on one or two big organizations to supply our surplus we're getting donations from hundreds of organizations so it's really creating a network effect where if one organization doesn't donate you know, this month, we have 10 more who might still donate that same product. And so we really believe that this aggregation of this small amount of surplus from all over, that's really the secret sauce in so many ways into us being able to have a sustainable pharmacy going forward that can offer folks medications on an ongoing basis rather than a one-off.
1: Did you ever consider becoming a for-profit company? This seems like something that would be very bankable
0: we are committed on mission first providing access to low income people in america no one should be making this decision between groceries and prescription drugs so how do we provide a low income family an underserved family with the medicine that they need and not have to you know upcharge them i mean that's a lot of what is happening right now in the healthcare system so how do we do this for as little as possible so in good pill most of our medications, over 400 generic medications, we're asking for folks to pay a $2 administrative fee for a month's supply of medication. We could not do that if we were not a philanthropic nonprofit organization who's putting access first. Has there been any pushback
1: from for-profit pharmacies or pharmaceutical companies, for example, or politically?
3: We were worried about that at first. We were kind of in a stealth mode as a nonprofit But as soon as we were featured, I think, in the New York Times, we had a manufacturer approach us and say that they wanted to donate through our platform. So a lot of those fears were unfounded. And I think one of the things that makes us so powerful is that we are aggregating hundreds of different donors from across the country. And manufacturers, for-profit pharmacies are all part of that equation.
1: What is the incentive for these companies that have surplus drugs kicking around to give them to you?
3: Well, they get a tax deduction, and destruction is very regulated and can cost one to three dollars a pound. So there's a huge business case for donors to donate their product rather than destroying it.
1: So, what is the goal for good pill and for serum overall, let's say five years?
0: We're now coming out of our first full year of operations. Um, You know, we did our official launch in 2018, January. We actually now have redistributed to patients over $5 million of medications at GoodPill alone. And we're actually on track by the end of this year to reach $10 million of donated medications to Georgia residents alone, and that's wholesale value. It's working. This is the tip of the iceberg. We really feel like this solution of surplus unused medications, this could be an answer for our high drug cost problem that we have as a nation. And so we are proving that every day, every month, one pill at a time and $10 million by the end of this year. And so into the future, we're looking at the how do we get to $100 million of unused medicine? How do we prove that we can save the healthcare system millions of dollars on the actual prescription drug costs, but also on the $18 billion of avoidable emergency room visits that happen every year, on the unnecessary hospitalizations, on the fact that every day right now in the U.S., you know, there was a study that came out that showed most families don't know where they would get four hundred dollars or a thousand dollars if they had an emergency us putting hundreds of dollars back in people's pockets has real impact on things like housing on things like employment on people's health and so we think that this is a real solution to tackle so many of the poverty issues that we have in this country
1: kia williams thank you so much for speaking with us thank you for having us adam thank you very much for being here
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Adam and Kia are co founders, two of the co founders of the national nonprofit company Serum and the Georgia based Good Pill Pharmacy that repurposes unused surplus prescription drugs to provide them to low income patients who need them, and they send them via mail order. We're going to leave you with, let's say, the jam, the bitterest pill. Stay with us. There's more on Second Thought coming up after a short break. Father's Day is this Sunday. It's a time to celebrate and reflect on how your dad or dads helped shape your life, for better or for worse. But have you thought about how you affected your father? Well, scientists now know that men experience measurable changes when they become parents. And researchers at Emory University have been looking at that connection. They've conducted interviews on the rewards and challenges of being a dad with new fathers from Metro Atlanta and are exploring the hormonal and neurobiological changes that come with being a dad. James Rilling is chair of the Department of Anthropology. He and his colleague Craig Hadley are working on the study. And Professor Rilling joins me now from the studio at Emory University. Hello, James.
4: Hi, good morning.
1: Hi. So, what were you trying to understand with this study?
4: Well, um, most recently we, we interviewed 120 fathers about the rewards and challenges of fatherhood. And we've done a lot of work on sort of the, the biology of fatherhood, but we wanted to learn more about uh, men's experience as fathers and what they're, there's more of a sort of qualitative study. Um, and so, the, I think one of the most interesting things that emerged to me—we we learned a lot about what men find rewarding and challenging about fatherhood. But to me, one of the most interesting things was the number of men who spontaneously told me how therapeutic they found it um, to be asked to talk about their experience as a father. Um, I had one one father who, after we got done with the interview, we normally compensate our participants for their time. And he looked at me and he said, well, why are you paying me? I should be paying you for the therapy <laughs> session. So, um, so just talking about it. Yeah, I think, you know, I think um, fathers are very rarely asked to talk about that experience. And we often feel like, you know, mothers shoulder a disproportionate amount of the burden of parenthood. And and we really shouldn't be complaining. And we should shouldn't talk about the things that we're struggling with. But what I found is that the men that I interviewed uh, really benefited from being able to talk about that.
1: And you're also a father. Is that something that you felt that there's a you know well-intentioned and for good reason focus on mothers?
4: Yeah, I and just as you say, I think I think it's for good reason. Um, but you know, we're here too, and we're we're an important part of the equation. So. Um, we shouldn't be forgotten about. And I think there, there's been a lot more research on mothers than there has been on fathers, and for good reason. But mm-hmm. um, we need to study fathers as well.
1: Well, the reporting on the study says that you're exploring the neural basis of human social cognition with a particular emphasis on father <laughs> fatherhood. First of all, what does that mean?
4: Yeah, well, we're interested in the both the hormonal and the neurobiological changes that men experience as they transition to fatherhood. So it's been known for for a long time that when women become mothers, they experience some pretty dramatic hormonal changes that prepare them for motherhood. But more recently, there's now evidence that uh, fathers are also experiencing hormonal and neurobiological changes, although they're, they're a bit more subtle. So um, Both our research group and others have shown that fathers experience a decrease in testosterone levels, um, and that's probably quite important for fathers, uh, especially with newborn infants, because testosterone can interfere with things like impulse control and emotion regulation. And those are things that we really need to be able to do effectively when sometimes we're confronted with you know, a a screaming, crying infant that can occasionally frustrate parents. Mm -hmm. So I think that 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 decline in testosterone is probably important um, to ensure that, you know, in in rare cases, fathers don't harm their infants in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also the case that testosterone is involved in, uh, you know, libido and sexual motivation. And so one thought is that by Decreasing their testosterone levels, fathers are able to sort of redirect some of that energy towards parenting and towards um, raising their, their children. What, um, what other yeah, kind of uh,
1: um, hormonal changes? Because this was something surprising to me that there's a change in oxytocin, which is something that they call the bonding hormone. Can you explain that?
4: Yeah, that's right. So, well, oxytocin has traditionally been thought of as a maternal hormone, and that's because it's very important for. Childbirth and for breastfeeding, um, and also for mother-infant bonding. But again, it's now become clear that uh, oxytocin levels increase in fathers, uh, although not they don't get the same dramatic increase that mothers do, um, and that uh, oxytocin is important for um, for for father-infant bonding as well. Um, we've actually done a study where we um, we give fathers additional exogenous oxytocin above and beyond what they produce themselves, and we look at how that affects uh, their brain function as they view pictures of their toddler children. And we found that it increases um, brain activation in areas of the brain that are involved in reward and motivation and also areas that are involved in um, empathy. And so we really think that these these increases in oxytocin help to uh, increase the motivation to parents and also um, uh, paternal empathy.
1: So that's interesting. I mean, I know you're just doing a study right now, but potentially down the line, maybe a man who's having trouble adjusting to fatherhood, maybe hormonally oxytocin could help them?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. So um, the hope is that for situations in which parents are depressed, uh, so for example, you know, we know uh, postpartum depression is a huge issue um, for mothers, but once again, um, there's also evidence that fathers uh, suffer higher rates of depression than, than men who are not fathers, and that often comes with, uh, as you suggest, kind of a, a deficit in uh, parental motivation. So, the hope is that oxytocin or a drug that, you know, releases oxytocin might be able to normalize uh, parental motivation in situations like that. Or in conditions where um, people are drug dependent or alcohol dependent, there can often be um, deficits in parental motivation. And so it might be helpful in those situations as well.
1: So who are the fathers that you interviewed? Are these new young fathers, older fathers, all involved in the lives of their children?
4: Yeah, it's a range of, of fathers. There were 120 fathers. Um, we interviewed uh, 40 fathers were, um, were white fathers, 40 Asian and 40 African American. And they're fathers with children of different ages. We wanted to get a sense of how the challenges um, and rewards change as your children progress through different, um, different life stages.
1: Well, so it doesn't take a research study to tell you that a new father is probably going to be exhausted from getting up and changing diapers in the the middle of the night. But did you find any significant differences in the neurobiological or uh, other changes of men of different stages of fatherhood?
4: Yeah, well, I think um, so some of the challenges that, you know, fathers with newborns faced, as you suggest, one big one is uh, sleep deprivation. And uh, because we don't have very good uh, paternal leave policies in this country, you know, you often have situations where fathers and also mothers are up all night and then they have to work the next day, and that can be a big challenge. Um, for some for some parents who have infants with, you know, temperaments that lead them to cry a lot, uh, infant crying, especially when it's prolonged and inconsolable can be uh, very stressful for parents. And if you combine that with sleep deprivation, um, it can be kind of a a volatile (laughs) combination. Mm -hmm. Um, Fathers also talk a lot about uh, kind of the financial pressure that they feel. And, you know, we think of it as kind of an old-fashioned notion that, that fathers are the breadwinners because, of course, mothers are too now. But a lot of fathers still consider themselves the ones who are primarily responsible for uh, providing for their children. And a lot of them report um, feeling a lot of pressure uh, in that regard. Um, and I, I guess the other thing that I found quite interesting is um, when fathers talked about how their relationship with, their, uh, with the child's mother changed um, when they became, you know, once they had a child. And so as you can imagine, a lot of the uh, attention and affection that the mother, um, you know, devoted to the father gets kind of redirected to the infant. Mm-hmm. And everybody agrees that that's uh, the way things should be. But still, a lot of fathers noted um, kind of a a, a loss of uh, intimacy in their relationship. I had one dad who um, said that basically he felt like They uh, transitioned from being lovers to roommates uh, after they had children.
1: Yeah, a story we've heard often, certainly, but it's interesting to hear it in this kind of context. My guest is James Rilling. He's professor of anthropology at Emory University, and we're talking about some research in progress about the neurobiological and hormonal social cognition of fatherhood. Um, so, yeah, so you're talking to some of the sort of social aspects, the whole idea of like being the breadwinner, being the provider, what happens inside of a relationship. Uh, so uh, this is something interesting, too. Jennifer Mascaro, she's one of your colleagues at Emory. She found differences in the way that men respond to babies based on gender. Now, I know this isn't your research, but did you find any reflections of that in your studies?
4: Uh, yeah, actually, we, we collaborated on that work. And, and Jenny, as you pointed out, led it. Um, and, you know, we showed, for example, that uh, fathers sing more to, gir- to, to their girls than to their boy um, children. And they um, express more sort of empathy towards girls than they do towards boys. And they also um, engage in more rough and tumble play with boys than girls and use more language um, related to achievement when they're talking to boys than to girls. So, Even
1: babies, just infants.
4: Uh, these were toddlers mm-hmm. so, between the ages of one and three. So, um, yeah, those um, kind of biases towards kind of socializing children um, into different gender roles seem to emerge um, pretty early, at least in the sample of fathers we looked at.
1: And not even conscious, I'm guessing.
4: Yeah, I think a lot of times it's not conscious. I think you're right, I think you're right about that.
1: So if we take the long anthropological view, how do these hormonal social changes and behaviors change or serve the species?
4: Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's interesting. I think humans are, are very interesting as a species because Anthropologists and biologists would characterize us as what what you would call a cooperative breeder, which means that if you look across human societies, um, mothers typically receive help in raising their offspring, but but the source of that help can be quite variable. So in some societies, it's fathers who are helping, in some societies it's grandmothers, uh, in some societies it's you know aunts, uncles, older siblings. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see that th- there do seem to be these hormonal changes that prepare fathers to, to sort of get involved and help with um, caregiving. So it's almost like we see um, this sort of evolutionary signature uh, in the biology of men that's, that's showing that they have been important in, um, in caregiving throughout, you know, much of human evolution.
1: And throughout much of human evolution, many cultures have not had our idea of the nuclear family, you know, the mom, dad, it's usually an extended family. So I'm curious about what you found about fathers who were not necessarily involved with their children's parenting, were there hormonal measurable differences for them?
4: Yeah, well, that's a great question. We haven't looked specifically at that. As you can imagine, most of the um, men who sign up for research on parenting are are pretty good parents and pretty good fathers. Um, So we didn't have too many fathers who considered themselves bad or uninvolved fathers. But I think um, what you do see a lot of the time is when fathers um, are less involved or less able to be involved, um, often you find things like grandmothers stepping in and doing um, a lot more, or other family members, and that's kind of a common theme. Actually, in the literature, is this sort of trade-off between uh, paternal and grandmaternal investment. Um, th- there's often a trade-off like that, and there's even debates uh, about human evolution about how important grandmothers versus fathers have been in terms of. Um, sort of provisioning children and helping mothers to raise children. Um, So that's still an ongoing debate.
1: How about research into different species? I'm not sure if you've done this research yourself, but how other mammals, other animals uh, treat their children as fathers to that parental bond? Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, well, it turns out that only about 5% of mammals um, and only about 5% of mammalian species are males involved in caring for the offspring. Um, And you see it mostly in uh, rodents and in primates and in carnivores. Um, And among primates, you tend to see it, um, interestingly, not so much in our great ape relatives, you know, the, the animals that are most closely related to us, but you see it more in um, some of the South American monkey species. And it's clear, what's interesting is fatherhood has actually evolved multiple times independently in different lineages. And we think that it probably evolved uh, independently in the, in the human lineage as well. Um, and, and one theory about sort of why it evolved in humans is that um, males in particular were really helping to uh, provision their offspring, and that would allow um, Women to have sort of shorter interbirth intervals and allow them to reproduce at a faster rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, actually, if you compare humans with other primates like chimps and bono- uh, orangutans and gorillas, um, we have much shorter interbirth intervals, and it's thought that that's because mothers get this help in, in provisioning their offspring.
1: Well, Father's Day is this Sunday. Based on your research, what would be a meaningful way to thank a father or a father figure besides tools or ties or electronic gadgets?
4: Uh, I think just sort of letting them know that, you know, we understand uh, some of the pressures that they're under. Uh, over the last 50 years, um, fathers are reporting more and more kind of work-family conflict. Uh, the demands at work haven't diminished at all, but but they're being asked to do more um, at home and just kind of acknowledging that. And then just sort of pointing out that, you know, there's all kinds of evidence that, The time that they spend with their children, um, especially when they're engaged, um, is really time well spent. It's important for their children's development. Um, And I think those are always important messages to keep in mind. James
1: Rilling, thank you so much for speaking with us.
4: That was my pleasure. Thanks. And
1: happy Father's Day in advance.
4: Oh, I appreciate that.
1: James Rilling is professor of anthropology, in fact, chair of the anthropology department at Emory University. And we would like to hear from you. How did your dad change your life, psychologically or socially, when you became a father? Let us know in our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. That's all we have time for for today. But in honor of Father's Day, we're going to leave you with James Brown papa has got a brand new bag. Back tomorrow with more of On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening.